0: I've talked about that before, but in my early 20s, I was a missionary in the Middle East, Western Europe, North Africa, eventually the Middle East. And uh, I was living in Amman, Jordan, and I was studying Arabic full-time, and the plan for me was to to eventually start working with uh, what we would call Muslim background believers and help them in their journey to love and, and, and pastor others. And um, uh, along the way, I was able to go spend... Uh, Passover week or Holy Week as Christians uh, in Palestine, Israel, in Jerusalem. It was, it was an amazing, amazing time, amazing experience. It ended up being really kind of the impetus for a lot of my passion I found in these kind of ancient ways in the church and liturgy and church history, and it was just really powerful for me to get to, to interact with it. And um matter of fact, that's one of the th- the, the reasons why I've been passion I've had a lot of passion over the years to, to let people experience a lot of a lot of the the elements that go within Holy Week. Uh, A lot of us in here perhaps grew up not in high church and very low church, uh, and that just means there wasn't a lot of practices with the ancient church. And one of the things that we value at Christ City is that we can jump in in these streams of traditions that have been happening for over 2,000 years and let that affect us and shape us. And so, that said, in your bulletins, there's something that Drew will highlight more later on, but there are these little inserts we put in there. It talks about Holy Week 2018. There are different things that we're doing this week to help you um, as you start journeying towards Easter Sunday. And uh, and there's things in here like this evening we're having something called Evensong where we'll recognize this day, Palm Sunday, uh, and what it meant for Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to have a, a Thursday evening service that's called Maundy Thursday, which how many of you have ever t- participated in a Maundy Thursday service? Okay, so a few of you. Um, this is something that many people have not heard of or or practiced before, but it's basically going to be a, don't get scared, a foot washing and prayer service. That's so inviting, I know. so that said, clean your feet that night, please, uh, because uh, there'll be some foot washing. But all that to say, we're going to have, it's going to be at Playhouse of the Square, and then we're having a good Friday service, and then we'll have Easter at Playhouse of the Square as well. So we won't be here next Sunday. We'll be at Playhouse on the Square, and you can get dressed up in the nines, and we're going to have a good service and a good time there. Um, and as I was always preparing for this sermon yesterday. Um, Drew texted me. He goes, "Hey, did you know that you're going to preach on what's called Spy Wednesday?" And I was like, "Spy Wednesday? Uh, it's uh, it's also called Holy Wednesday." Uh, and. Uh, there's, in different pockets of the church over the last 2,000 years, there's been this recognition of not just when Jesus came into Jerusalem, not just when Jesus shared a meal Thursday evening with his closest friends, not just when Jesus died on the cross and was raised on Sunday, but when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And I'm going to show you a picture here. It's going to creep you out at first, all right, just so you know, fair warning. Um, so here's the picture. Uh, those are not purple clansmen. don't worry. Um, I know that looks kind of crazy, though. That's in Spain. Uh, it's somewhere, but it looks like either a purple clansman or maybe even a purple stormtrooper. Well, I don't really know for sure, but it's very strange, and there are people around the world that practice this, and they would dress up these ways, and then they would go throughout the city, and it's a recognition of this spy that betrayed Jesus, and it became the impetus then of Jesus then going to the cross, right, of going to the cross, that there's a recognition called Spy Wednesday. How weird. The church is so weird, right? We're a weird group of people. And so, um, that's kind of what I want us to, to look at and dive into this morning, that there's this interaction, this moment, that, that Jesus has with one of his followers, Judas. And this this betrayal that happens, because at the core of the story with Judas is one of betrayal. And it's something that um, writers and, and, uh, and thinkers have kind of gravitated towards for hundreds and thousands of years. I mean, you have Shakespeare's Julius Caesar play, right? And we have Caesar on the Ides of March, which is March 15th. It was the day of reckoning in Rome. And at the Ides of March, uh, some senators gather around Caesar and they stab him in the back. And um, as he looks around at those who are his... Uh, persecutors who are betraying him, he sees a close confidant, Brutus, and he says to him the famous words in Shakespeare's play, et tu Brute, right? Even you, Brutus. And it isn't just someone like William Shakespeare who writes about this. We find that it's even in contemporary culture, whether it's Edmund in Narnia betraying Aslan, right? Whether it's a Gollum, right, uh, betraying Frodo or even Peter Pettigrew, right, betraying the Potter family. There's all these narratives and stories. Betrayal is something that people can grab a hold of, they can come to, because it's a very common human experience. A matter of fact, even before this betrayal of Judas and to Jesus, we have these famous stories, these fables, they're called Aesop's Fables. And there was this person named Aesop who lived about 400 years before Jesus, and this Greco-Roman world. And he wrote all these stories. They were cautionary tales written about how the world works and how relationships work. And in your bulletin, I even put this for us to, to have. Um, it says, uh, an ass or a donkey and a fox went into partnership and sallied out to forge for food together. They hadn't gone far before they saw a lion coming their way at which they were both dreadfully frightened. But the fox thought he saw a way of saving his own skin and went boldly up to the lion and whispered in his ear, I'll manage that you shall get a hold of the ass without the trouble of stalking him, if you'll promise to let me go free. The lion agreed to this, and the fox then rejoined his companion and contrived before long to lead him by a hidden pit, which some hunter had dug as a trap for wild animals." And into which he fell. When the lion saw that the ass was safely caught and couldn't get away, it was to the fox that he first turned his attention, and he soon finished him off, and then at his leisure proceeded to feast upon the ass. And at the end of every Aesop's story or fable, there would be like this one line to remember, and here's his reminder, betray a friend, and you'll often find you have ruined yourself. Now, we look at this story with Judas, and um, you probably haven't even heard many sermons preached on it, because it feels pretty cut and dry. Like, here's someone who backstabbed Jesus, who betrayed him. Um, even in Luke 22.3 and in other passage we'll see it, it talks about how the, the, the devil entered him. And that was kind of then what brought him to betray Jesus. And we look at that, and we go, I can't relate to this. This is kind of strange. Of course, I would never do anything like that to anyone I'm close to. And yet, throughout history, one of the most common practices of humanity is betrayal. It's been recognized for hundreds and thousands of years. And so, what we want to look at is, in many ways, how we're like Judas, that we have the ability, the potential— for betraying those closest to us, and we would never even see it as betrayal. But we'll also see that we have the potential to be like Jesus. We've been in the sermon series called The Humanity of Jesus, where we're looking at the ways that Jesus was very human in this world, and how He even brings us a redeemed way of living in this world that seems to heighten our humanity, to lift it above the perfidy of how we naturally want to interact. So that's what we're going to look at, how we're like Judas and how we're like Jesus. First, how we're actually like Judas. We don't know a lot about him. We know his last name was Iscariot, which means in Hebrew, uh, son of Keriot, which is a town south of Jerusalem. So he lived in the southern part of modern-day Palestine, Israel. That's all it means, Judas Iscariot, a man from Keriot. We know that he had a penchant for the Scriptures, that he had a desire to be a disciple. Every young man would go into this process of learning the Torah. And if you were really smart, you would then graduate to next levels of learning. Um, and But then eventually you'd be a reject if you couldn't really make it to the top levels, the top schools where rabbis would select you. And we know this, Jesus' disciples were a bunch of rejects. Men who couldn't make it as bona fide disciples of some kind of rock star rabbi. So Jesus goes and seeks out these people who had a desire to really walk in the ways of the Torah and to follow a rabbi. So we know that Judas actually really desired to be a true Israelite, someone who lived and interacted with the Torah. We also know, though, that he managed the money of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It tells us in John 12, actually, that uh, there's this moment where Jesus had just raised back to life Lazarus, and he's at Simon the leper's house. It was crazy. All these people that were the rejects in society, they all became a band of brothers and sisters that would follow Jesus. So you had Simon the leper, uh, who has obviously had some money, and he had this big party that Lazarus was raised back to life. And Mary, the brother of Lazarus, took a year's worth of wages that she had that was invested in some kind of perfume. And she takes it and she pours it on Jesus' head and on his feet and washes it with her hair. It becomes a very awkward Um, but very vulnerable moment for her to recognize the beauty and majesty of Jesus. And it says in John 12, 6, that Judas was very disturbed by this. He actually says this money could have been used to serve the poor. And yet, John goes on to to, to have commentary that Judas, while he would say that, he would also pocket a few coins here and there for himself because he was the treasurer. So, we also know that Judas was duplicitous, but here's the thing. In Matthew 26, was interesting, that same story I just told you, it says that not just Judas was indignant or bothered that Jesus would allow this woman to come and do this, all the disciples were as well. It says they all were indignant. All of his followers were looking at him going, what are you doing? This is stupid. And so, Judas then leaves that moment, and then something happens very profound. Look. On the screen here, or you can look in your Bibles, verse 14 through 16, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, we have a couple of things that have happened after this. We know that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a colt, on a donkey, and that would have been representing this prophecy that the king would return. Whenever a king would return from battle and winning a battle, he would return riding a donkey, riding a colt. It's Very symbolic. Jesus enters into Jerusalem as this king. People waving palm branches saying, Hosanna in the highest. And then we get to this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas betrays Jesus. And it would seem pretty straightforward. He just was an evil person who was really greedy, and he looked for a moment to catch Jesus and make a few bucks. Which, by the way, 30 pieces of silver was about six weeks worth of wages. Okay? So, it's not a lot, but still enough to bring some motivation. But I think there's more to the story than just that side. I think Judas gets sometimes too bad of a rap. Right? Because look here in verse 48. Verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now let's just break this down a little bit, these different elements that are happening. First, a kiss. Why a kiss? Like, is it just he's trying to be super uh, dramatic, Right? Is it that they really just couldn't tell Jesus who he was? It actually gives us a hint um, in Psalm chapter 2, which uh, Psalm 2 is known as a coronation hymn. It would be sung over a newly minted king in Israel. And there's a really interesting part near the end of Psalm 2. Let me just read it for us. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Sure, there's a chance that Judas betrayed him just to be dramatic with a kiss. There's also a chance that Judas was realizing something in the Scriptures, that the coronation of the king always came with a kiss the king, lest you kindle his wrath. Now, obviously, there could be this, this aspect that Judas is kissing Him because the temple thugs basically are sent to go get Jesus, and even though Jesus says, I was teaching in public, there's a good chance that these temple thugs who really don't get away from the temple because they're temple thugs, they didn't know what He looked like. And it's flickering light, right? Like, So maybe they didn't really see Him very well, and they needed to know for sure, because they didn't want to take Jesus in public because it would bring a huge uproar. That's a possibility. But this kiss is really interesting. Then he says to him, "Greetings rabbi." It means "master." It would be a very affectionate term to call someone. It would be very highly an honoring of someone. Matter of fact, there's, when you use this word within the, the Greek, there's no guile with it. There's no duplicity with it, that he simply recognizes someone of honor. "Greetings rabbi." He comes up to him and he kisses him. He says, greetings to you, rabbi. And then it says that Jesus said to him, friend, which Jesus could have said to him, enemy. He could have said to him, get away from me. But Jesus calls him friend. Now, all this together, here's what I'm suggesting. That Judas was doing the wrong thing for the right reason. I think Judas was doing the wrong thing for the right reason. I think Judas was very patriotic. I think Judas desired for there to be a real Messiah to come and lift up all these poor, broken, beatitude people called Israel out of their perfidy and bring them to a place now of splendor, of taking them out from under the rule and the thumb, the oppressive rule of Rome. That Judas actually... Even though he was duplicitous and he had some things about him that weren't working out very well in life, I think he actually had a desire for there to be a right thing to happen, for Jesus to be the true Messiah. He kept looking at Jesus and the decisions Jesus was making, and he kept making counterintuitive decisions of what a real Messiah would do. But then he'd see Jesus do all these signs and wonders. So Jesus would do signs and wonders, and all the disciples would think, great, power. And then Jesus would lower himself and dine with those who were prostitutes and thieves and liars. That's not what a conquering king does. Jesus kept being the foil to what they believed a real Messiah should look like and be. Jesus kept taking the lower path to rise up instead of taking his rightful claim to rule over all. I think Judas was frustrated by that. I think he wanted Jesus to come in power, and Jesus refused to do it. And I believe in the garden— Jesus, Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand to orchestrate a God moment. I think Judas wanted Jesus to have a huge God moment, and he was trying to force the hand. I mean, even notice here in verse 53, Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? You got to remember, Jesus had Peter following Him who was just super impetuous and just always wanting, like, he was just always reactive to things. He had another guy called Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were like these anarchists and usurpers that were constantly trying to find ways to destroy and bring down Rome. I mean, Jesus didn't have a bunch of meek and mild choir boys and girls following him to the cross. He had men who were passionate about things wanting to change, and they were so confused why Jesus wouldn't just force His way into power. He had the following of all these people in Israel. He had bands and bands of people who had seen Him perform these miracles, these signs and wonders, and they're all scratching their head. You can almost see Judas going, this is going to happen. Yes, call down the legions of angels. Let's now have this true moment where everything's going to change. And Jesus doesn't do it. And Judas is left with his simple manipulation. What I believe is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I mean, doing the wrong things for the right reasons. That he was simply trying to orchestrate a God moment that only God could. So here's my question. Have you ever tried to force a moment only God can orchestrate? Have you ever tried to force a moment in your life that only God can orchestrate? I think that's kind of what's called being a human. Like we look at our lives, we look at our situations and we go, I need a God moment to happen so I'm gonna force my hand on this and orchestrate it. I'm gonna try to push my way forward for this thing to happen in this relationship. Maybe it was a marriage, maybe it was having kids, Maybe it was a job, maybe, I don't know what it is, but there are these things, these places, these times in life where we try to force something to happen, a moment that we believe that we have to have as humans, and it's only something that God can orchestrate. And then when we're left with God not seemingly showing up, we have all this simply like manipulation that we have brought on other people and ourselves. Well, how about this? Have you ever been in a relationship with someone that you wanted the best for and from and went to extreme and manipulative methods to get them to do what you think they should do? I mean, have you ever been in a relationship with someone that you see their potential and you want so much from them and you want so much for them, and yet you go to these manipulative ways to get them to do the things that you're so convinced that need to happen? I think this is what Judas was dealing with, and I think it's a very basic part of humanity. And here's the thing. I'm not talking about pulling a Machiavellian-like move here, right? Like I'm not talking about trying to be this amazing and huge usurper politically, and you're wanting to destroy other people for your own gain. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just simple, straight-up manipulation. Being duplicitous, because that's what betrayal is. is being duplicitous, or said this way, betrayal is enacted when you say one thing and do another at another person's cost. Betrayal is when you say one thing and do something else at another person's cost. I'm just asking you to sit with this for a second. Can you see that in your own life? Do you see these moments where you said one thing, but you did another, and it ended up costing other people around you? this manipulation. It's a very common thing within a human story, and we see that there's this grand vision that we're wanting to do, like we want to see the right things happen. We really do, and we go about these questionable ways to make it happen. We nag, and it really comes through shame tactics. I don't know about you, but one of the great motivations for me growing up from some family members was like shame, right? Like, do you really want to eat that next helping of mashed potatoes? Yes, I do, Nanny. I do. Thank you very much. I'm okay with this waist- waistline, okay? Thank you. Like, yes, I do. I do want that second helping, right? Um, I had somebody close to my family one time tell me, um, hey, uh, hey, don't cut your hair short because your nose is big, right? And uh, it'll really accent that in the wrong way. Okay, thank you, person I trust a lot in life to be with me and help me and comfort me. Right? Uh, like we use these shame tactics. As a matter of fact, we were flying back from visiting family uh, in Virginia, D.C. this past week. It was Iranian New Year. I don't know if you knew this or not. Uh, I don't know how you know into you are with uh, Iranian ways of life, but it was Iranian New Year. Uh, so we went to the D.C. Virginia area to go celebrate with my family got snowed in. uh, And then yesterday had to fly back. We had to catch a 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time flight, and we didn't get back until 10 a.m. Central. We were in the air for seven hours uh, and with a four-year-old, all right? And I refrained from calling her a little terrorist because I was on a plane, and I'm Middle Eastern, and I just didn't want that to happen, okay? But let's just be honest, okay? She's four, and she was being like, that. Okay. And it it was, I felt like I was MacGyver with like 10 seconds left because we had about 30 minutes left in the plane and Charlotte was losing her freaking mind. Like she decided like, just break the bank. I'm done with life. Here we go. You're not going to make it out of here and unscathed without me completely embarrassing you dad. And so that's what she went for. Like she went for like 11. And at that moment I was like, okay, what do we do? So we, we start, like, it's not, okay, just so you know, giving your children candy and sugar doesn't, like, me make them calmer. But it does, like, satiate for a moment. Don't don't judge me until you have kids. If you have kids, you better not be judging me, okay? So, like, at this moment, we're throwing, like, like pieces of gum at her. Just take it. Just take it. She's a beast. (laughs) She's trying to consume it all. You know what I mean? Here, take this right here. She's consuming it. And we're just trying to keep her satiated just enough to get her off the plane without completely embarrassing us. (laughs) We were, we were trying to do the right thing, but we went about it in very, very wrong ways. <laughs> we paid for it yesterday when we got home. I think these moments are common for us. We keep trying to do these, these right, orchestrate these right things, but go about it in these wrong ways. We use shame tactics in our marriages. It's, listen, It's in, in marriage, it's very common. It's something called nagging, and I, I know we don't like hearing that. But it's when you are pushing and trying to push and push and push your spouse to do something, and then they don't do it, and then eventually you just kind of go like to, well, let me just try to say this thing that'll cut at them a little bit harder. Let me bring up this thing from the past, this thing they really don't want to hear. So we we kind of nag. That's a form of shaming. It's the power you have in a relationship with a friend that you know there's a sensitive part of their life. That if you say that, it becomes this cutting buzzword that ignites them, almost gaslights them. And you save it. You don't mean to use it, but sometimes it comes out. I know it's been a common story in my marriage. I know it's something we have to work on regularly. I know it's something that happens in relationships with other people in my life. There's a lot of power that happens when you're close to someone and you have the ability just to like turn it up a moment because you really want them to do something on your terms. And I think we do this because we get really afraid of these moments People are scary. You're scary. I'm scary. Because you can't be controlled as much as we try. And what happens so many times when we can't force a moment or when a moment doesn't happen naturally, we get really afraid. And because we don't want to talk about our fear out loud and share it and confess it to another person to go, hey, I'm afraid that this is what's happening here. And I just need to talk about it with you. We don't know how to do that. So instead, we go to anxiety. Anxiety. We go to try to controlling rituals, and then eventually we just rage, and we try to take over our lives and their life, and relationship after relationship after relationship is destroyed because it's a form of betrayal. It's trying to do the right thing to get them to this moment where God can really be seen, but we go about it in very, very wrong ways. So where's that happening in your life right now? How is this you? Listen, don't fool yourself. I'm not going to fool myself. Judas, I would say, more than any other disciple, saw the potential of Jesus. He saw the potential of Jesus. He was with him for three years, following him around, seeing these signs and wonders. He saw the potential, and he thought, if I just kind of put the pressure on, maybe I can make Jesus act the way that I think he should because I'm afraid and I don't know how to talk to him about these things. I'm afraid that Rome will always be in control and I'll always be subservient to it, an indentured slave. I'm afraid that he'll be another phony Messiah. So I've got to figure out how to force a moment. And while I'm at it, I'm going to try to take care of myself, play both sides. And what happens, as we saw at the Fox, when you play both sides, you ruin yourself. Are you on the verge of ruining yourself in relationships? Because there's duplicity this is something I've had to work through a lot in life. I am so naturally inclined to being a usurper. I hate this about myself. I've, I've, I've been accused of being a usurper. I've been accused of being duplicitous. I've been accused of hurting and betraying. And I've had to sit with that and learn from that and repent from that and then walk with people to hopefully even gain back some trust. Because I have such a clear vision in my head of what the world could look like and what people and their potential could be. And in every moment, just so you know, in those moments, those people who call me those things, they were with people who were closest to me. They weren't from a distance. They were people who were closest to me, the people I saw the most potential in. Betrayal doesn't happen with people from a distance. It happens with those closest to you. And you don't mean for it to happen. But because you're unaware of how to deal with your fear and talk about it, you come out in these sideways shame tactics to get them to do the things you think they should be doing. We have the potential to be like Judas. And the only way through it, friends, and to deal with it is to talk about it, the things that make us so afraid. Your marriage will become hollow and frail if you don't know how to talk about the things that make you afraid with the other person. If you don't learn to do that, this is counseling 101, 201, 301, 401. If you don't know how to talk about the things that make you afraid with the person you're married to, you will find ways to either get away from that person or try to change them in your own manipulation. If you do not know how to deal with the fear of even being in a church like this, because you look around and you're like, man, it's great, the presence of God, at the same time, like this church doesn't always do the exact thing that I want them or think they should do. Well, that's just called community. So until you learn to talk about your fears with a person, you'll go about trying to change people around you in these kind of sideways, shameful tactics. We have to be willing to talk about our fear. Judas instead tried to get away from his fear. But we also see that we are like Jesus. I noticed something as I was reading this passage And I just couldn't get away from it all week. Look at verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Not just Judas. Judas isn't the one who deserves the bad rap here. All the disciples left him and fled. That's what betrayal is. If you could articulate what betrayal feels like, what it looks like on paper, is when those closest to you, those that you put the most trust in, to be with you in the darkest moments, and for Jesus, literally, a dark moment, they leave you and they flee. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to being left People fleeing you. When they finally got the real you, they couldn't take it, and they had to pack up and go. When they saw the real perfidy and brokenness to your life, they just couldn't take it, and they left you. It's a very common human experience. And usually we try to deal with it in one or two ways, right? Like, we either try to just completely um, insulate and isolate ourselves from anyone who even looks, smells. Like, sounds like those people who have left us, and all of a sudden, you're building yourself up an ivory tower where you can't be in a relationship. That's one way. Another way is you go about all life always playing this victim role, never getting out of your victimhood, because everybody's a betrayer. Everybody is a perpetrator. Everybody's after you. And listen, I am not going to be smug enough to say that you just need to get over that. You just need to get over that. Because that's even an abusive thing to say to someone who's been abused. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that if you don't start dealing with that, you are going to like shrivel away and die. Because life is cutting and hurtful and difficult. And life is filled with people, it's people who are hurtful and difficult. And in those moments, before we could even get to the idea of forgiveness, we just simply need to know something. Do we have a God that can be with us in the darkness? You ever had those moments where you're like, nobody's left, God, are you there? Nobody's left, No, they've all left me, God, are you there? And Voskamp beautifully said this. It is in the dark that God is passing by. In the blackest, God is closest at work, forging His perfect and right will. Though it is black, and we can't see, and our world seems to be free-falling, and we feel utterly alone, Christ is most present to us. This Sunday, I'm sorry, this, this Friday, we're going to have something called a Good Friday service. We're going to talk about Jesus on the cross, this utterly, like, lonely moment. I want you to understand something. Jesus goes through the worst and the darkest so that in the worst and in the darkest, you can find some bit of light. Jesus goes through the worst and the darkest moments of life so that in your life, if he is your Lord, you can find some flicker, some glimmer of light. Because when we're in dark moments, we don't need a whole lot of light. We just need a flicker, something to tell us that life somehow isn't completely lost. Do you have a God that can offer you a flicker of light in the midst of darkness? Or have you insulated and isolated yourself so much so from others around you so much in a victimhood mentality that God can't even be seen in those moments. Have you been betrayed by the church, betrayed by those closest to you? I believe it happens. I believe it has happened here times 10 over and over again. We've experienced a major thing last year, right? Of course it happens. And if those become the defining watermarks of our life, Then we try to put God in the dock, as C.S. Lewis would say, demanding that he prove to us. But really all God wants to do is say, hey, on the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I went through true darkness so that there can be a flicker of light for you. Do you have a God that can give you that flicker of light? And then two, I would say this, can you accept the consequences of risky relationships like Jesus could? Jamin preached a message a few weeks ago on relationships, about how until you're willing to be in a relationship to the degree that you might be harmed, you'll never fully get everything out of that relationship. Relationships are risky. And if you're always trying to calculate and hedge your bets on the people that will be involved in your life and curate it, you will end up a very lonely, isolated, sad, echo-chambered person that only has yes people that really can't challenge you to new places. You'll be so afraid of others and dealing with your fear, you won't be able to take people like trying to help you see different perspectives. And in turn, we end up sitting on our bitterness, and there's that old saying, bitterness is drinking the poison and waiting for the other person to die. Have you been hurt in such a way in life that you have been drinking the poison? And it's really just turned to resentment for you and you're waiting for others to have to suffer consequences when it's you because you can't forgive the surface that's enduring the consequences. And I think here, here's what I want you to know about forgiveness. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was a part of the apartheid in South Africa, a South African Anglican pastor, a black man who endured the perfidy of all that humanity could throw his way. Here's what he said about forgiveness. It's really important. Forgiveness does not relieve someone of responsibility for what they have done. Forgiveness does not erase accountability. It is not about turning a blind eye or even turning the other cheek. It is not about letting someone off the hook or saying it is okay to do something monstrous. Forgiveness is simply about understanding, listen to this, friends, that every one of us is both inherently good and inherently flawed. Within every hopeless situation, in every seemingly hopeless person, lies the possibility of transformation. No matter what you've done as a Judas, there's always a possibility of transformation. And no matter what anyone else has done to you, there's always a possibility of their transformation. Transformation. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you give them all the access back into your life again. Let me just kind of break down all these boundaries I had and let you just run a muckle over me. No, it's not that at all. But this is why Jesus talks about this, about forgiveness, saying that it's the most divine thing you ever can do, that until you can forgive a person, you really can't say that you know God. Because to know God is to forgive a person, to forgive others. Not letting them back into your life, maybe. Maybe still having your boundaries. But friends, forgiveness is what this cross that our Lord bared is about. Because here's what it tells us. That you say, you never could have done enough to be forgiven. I never could have done enough to be forgiven. And that's why Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left this stain, and he washed me white as snow. Do you see that for yourself? We have that potential to forgive and to interact with the divine in our humanity. That's what Jesus is trying to show us. Yes, he came to pay for all the sins, but he also came to give us a model, a part of excellence, this example of saying, you can actually forgive in the midst of all this debasement of those around you. And when you do, it will bring such a divine moment for others. Listen, it'll orchestrate such a divine moment for others because you now would be leaning into God and your need for Him and not living out of your own humanity. And that's what this table represents for us now. See, whatever you have going into this Holy Week, if there's any kind of resentment, things that you're holding on to with others, fears you have, and you don't know how to talk about it, this table tells us something, that you can find true motivation and the power once more to reach out. That if you've been a Judas and you keep manipulating, this table tells us something. You can stop those ways. And you actually can like own up to ways that you have Gone about change in manipulative ways because you have all this fear. So I'm going to pray. We're going to go through a liturgy. And I'm going to invite you to let this be a moment that God's orchestrating for change in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Paying the price, your body shred to pieces on a cross and in the midst of it all simply saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How incredible and how divine in your humanity. And it tells us that we have potential for that but it's also going to cost us a lot to forgive to not harbor the bitterness, to do what we have to do to take care of ourselves at the same time to realize that every human being has potential for greatness and the potential to be very harmful, that we are flawed and we are made in your image, Jesus, in your image, God. So I pray now as we come to the table, something powerful would be at, at hand for us, that it just wouldn't be a memorial service to recognize what a good thing you did for us, But it would be a moment where we get to bump into the divine and realize that maybe, God, we don't have to orchestrate these divine God moments. Maybe you're just waiting for us to simply turn to you and say, God, please step in. It's dark, and I need your help. In your name we pray, amen.